So a little bit about Isaiah. Um, he was a prophet in Judah who prophesied after the fall of Israel. Remember the kingdom of Israel split around 930 BC, right after Solomon's death. And you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom fell to the Syrians in 722. The southern kingdom or Judah survived the siege of Assyria, but ultimately fell to Babylonians about 200 years later in 586. Isaiah prophecies about trusting in the Lord's protection. It was written during the reigns of multiple kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and maybe Manasseh. Isaiah prophesied from 742 BC to his death in 680. He thus prophesied for, eight, for 60 years in an attempt to bring the people's hearts of the kingdom of Judah back to God. His book includes not only the siege of Assyria and Judah, but also the upcoming captivity in Babylon, which would occur 100 years after his death. So verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and his princes will rule in justice. Who's capable of reigning in righteousness? Jesus. Jesus here is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy 700 years before the coming of Christ. Jesus will reign in righteousness. So who are the princes that will rule in justice? The disciples and apostles. The princes will rule in justice. Thus Jesus and his disciples and apostles will rule in true righteousness and justice. A king reigning in righteousness and his princes will reign in justice. This is a foreign concept to us. Think about it. We live in a world of sin. Everything we know, our entire existence has been tainted by sin. On this earth, we've never experienced true righteousness or justice or a person capable of reigning with righteousness. Certainly, there have been kingdoms over the years or governments which have been more righteous than others, but nothing like righteousness in God's eyes, nothing. We're fortunate to live in a free country that was founded under God in an attempt to escape the despotism of the kings of England. But all human regimes and governments are unjust in some way or the other. Why? Genesis 3, the fall, sin. So since this concept of a king ruling in righteousness and justice is a foreign concept to us, Isaiah gives us some metaphors to help us understand, and they're rich ones. Um, to understand characteristics of Jesus. I'm going to need you guys to imagine with me. Can you do that? Kind of close your eyes maybe and just imagine some of these metaphors because they're so, so rich. Okay, the first, Jesus is like a hiding place from the wind. Have you ever been in the wind for hours and hours on time? I mean extreme wind. It would have been something more familiar to the patient, patient people of this time than, than us, because they were dependent on riding camels, riding donkeys, traveling in elements for, we're in cars, automobiles. Imagine what it'd be like to finally be out of that wind after you're in it for days on end. I'll tell you, it's a weird thing. My closest experience was playing golf in 40 mile power winds for four hours. It's so windy that literally the golf ball is moving on the tee. And when you finish, and you go inside, your body is still moving. Because you've been fighting that wind for so long, your body is still, is still, is still compensating. And the exhaustion, the wind takes such a toll on you. 
Friends, Jesus is our hiding place from the winds of this world, trying to push us in every direction. He is the stillness which allows our life to function, allowing us to have peace. Jesus is a shelter from the storm. Have you ever been in a storm without shelter? I'm not talking about being outside and a thunderstorm comes and you run in the house. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about being utterly exposed, extremely vulnerable to the elements, having no shelter, and being a victim of a massive storm. Living in East North Carolina, we're all familiar with living through hurricanes. That's the kind of storm I'm talking about, except going through it without shelter. Have you ever been in a storm when you're really afraid for your life? Consider the feeling of going from extreme danger, the point of fearing for your life, to a shelter. Friends, this is what Jesus brings. He is our shelter. He's at our side through it all. We're all going to have storms in life, whether it's a period of brief, intense suffering, or hardship, or a period of chronic, long-term suffering. Our greatest storm for sinful man will be judgment day. And Jesus brings ultimate safety. The only safety this day in which we can exceed, succeed with him on our side. Like streams of water in a dry place. Have you ever been to a desert? I mean a real desert. Like the Sahara, the Mojave Desert. We took a family trip to Palm Desert, California a couple weeks ago. Um, but it doesn't feel like a desert at all. There were golf courses, 168 to be exact, um, green grass, some of the best golf conditions I've ever seen, trees, flowering vegetation, but yet we were in a desert. How is that possible? Well, there's a massive aquifer right below the desert. So they just tapped into well and watered everything. I hit my golf ball one time over the wall and I'm going up to, in a futile attempt to try to find it. And I look, and there's a cinder block wall and this beautiful golf course. I mean, absolutely beautiful. And on the other side of the wall, where I was looking for my golf ball, where it wasn't there, there was just a wasteland, just sand, maybe a little brushy, a couple little brushy bushes, but nothing, just absolute desolation. Think about the time you've seen deserts in movies. Think about maybe seeing skeletons in the sand, uh, Star Wars movies, you've even got the sand that could suck you under, and there's snake-like creatures in there to eat you. Think about the first scene of Return of the Jedi. A desert is equated with death. When a stream of water comes into a desert, it's literally bringing back life from death. Friends, Jesus is this life-giving stream. He literally brings life to our decaying bodies. And without his saving grace, we'd be doomed to eternal death. Jesus is literally living water. Like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Have you ever been out in the sun for hours and hours upon end and your only shade was when the sun went down? Imagine that feeling going on for days on end, not being able to find shade. Again, this metaphor would have been more easily related relatable by someone of the ancient times but try to imagine with me the feeling of not being able to find shade and then being able to find it permanent protection from the sun or maybe a weary nation 
being victimized by an evil king or regime, and obtaining final and long overdue protection and safety. Here I'm imagining the feeling of citizens of France in the 1930s and 40s in Europe after the Allied troops liberated them from Nazi occupation. The feeling of freedom after such an evil, oppressive regime. Friends, this is the relief that Jesus brings, the rest from weariness. Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher from the late 19th century, preaches on these verses in Isaiah 32 in his famous sermon entitled, Streams of Water in a Dry Place. And I'd like to quote one part of that for you. It's beautiful. I wish I just had the English accent I could duplicate, but I'm not going to try. Applying the language of the whole verse to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King in Zion, we're struck by the number of the metaphors. He's not merely a hiding place and a covert and a river, but he's a shadow of a great rock. My brethren, if we attempt to set forth our Lord's glories by earthly analogies, we shall need a host of them, for no one can set him forth to perfection. Each one has some deficiency, and even altogether they are insufficient to display all of his loveliness. We need a thousand types and images to depict the varied beauties of his character, the manifold excellencies of his office, the merit of his sufferings, the glories of his triumphs, and the innumerable blessings which he bestows on the sons of men. My best attempt at illustrating one of these metaphors is my, in my life is a story. Back in 2005, Meredith and I were invited to go on a trip to the Bahamas by a friend. His father happened to have a yacht, and the folks whom had chartered it the next week had backed out last minute. So my friend called and said, could we get down there? He, sure, when? Uh, in two days. <laughs> so we took, uh, we made it down there. We took uh, the yacht from Nassau out to the small island in the Bahamas. We snorkeled and fished and swam. We had a chef. It was amazing. And then after we've been there four or five days, the captain comes up to us and says, you know, there's a hurricane coming. Uh, we've we've got to leave like tomorrow morning. So we're like, wow, okay. So right is about a 60-mile boat trip from where we were to back to Nassau. And right in the middle of this trip, we lost steering. So you turn the steering wheel and nothing happens. That's what I'm talking about. The engines were fine. Two twin diesels, awesome. But there was no connection between the steering wheel and the rudder. There's a hydraulic line at so the wind's blowing at this point 30 to 35 mile per hour continuous with gusts up to 40 to 50 easily um, and if you're in that kind of wind on a on an open water the waves are huge so you're probably thinking okay just call for a tow right well i don't know if you know anything about radios uh offshore but because the earth is round after about 25 miles you cannot radio you lose touch because of the roundness of the earth. So remember I said it was 60 miles. So if you got 25 miles, you get radio contact with the port of departure. And you got 25 miles, your port of arrival. There, and you got 60 miles, there's 10 miles in there, right? Well, guess where we lost steering? Right there. So radio silence. Okay, so um, we're now anchored. Our engines are cut off. We had no way to call for help. Strangely enough, the Bahamas, despite being made up of 500 awesome islands, have nothing like a Coast Guard. 
now we were towing this like 21, 22 foot fishing boat that we go fishing in during the day. Um, and there was discussion amongst our group about maybe we just take that on the 30 miles back to Nassau. Uh, this didn't look good to me. The waves are getting bigger. It's getting close to sunset. Uh, 30 miles is a long way in rough seas and a small boat. And it was about that time we looked up and the, the stern line that was towing this fishing boat snapped. And the fishing boat is just floating away. Okay, so... Now, if you're a young boat captain, I, did, I, did I mention this is the, our captain's first trip? Um, he was 25 years old, not some like bearded captain like you see in Titanic or something. Um, and he was a type 1 diabetic, and I found out later he hadn't taken any insulin that day. Okay. Um, and it's your first boat trip, you're a young captain, you're not going to let just like this really nice, valuable fishing boat float away. So what you do is you leave your anchored yacht with all the passengers on board and you jump in after it. And that's what happened. So I don't have my 50-ton captain's license and uh, I really don't have a lot of experience in hurricane seamanship, but I'm pretty sure that's not what you're supposed to do if you're the captain of a boat. (laughs) So here we are, the boat's floating away, he's swimming toward it. Uh, He gets probably 200 yards from us, we're anchored, remember. And the winds are blowing, 35. Well, this boat's sticking up, so it's like a sail, right? So it's being pushed. So he realizes at about 200 yards that he can't reach the boat. It's being blown faster than he can swim. So he turns around and tries to start swimming back to us. Guess what? The current, I'm looking down and seeing seaweed go by me like it's on a, you know, escalator or something. It's just flying by. And he's swimming, but yet he's getting further and further from the boat. We're anchored. We can't do anything. So what do we do? We just, my friend looks at me and says, go get every rope you can find. And I'm just tying knots. And we took a ring buoy and we let out till we couldn't see it anymore. And we felt something on, we pulled it in and we, we brought him in. He was, um, so let's summarize where we are. The captain is now semi-conscious. After fighting the current, the wind, and salt water for about an hour of swimming, swallowing salt water the whole time, he's no insulin in his body. The fishing boat, which was going to be our virtual life raft, has floated away. It's gone. We're anchored in a motor yacht without steering. The winds are increasing steadily with the hurricane approaching. We had no radio contact whatsoever. We're in international waters, meaning there's no coast guard. No one's coming to save us. And it's approaching sunset. The winds are getting bigger, waves getting bigger. Oh, and the, this, this body of water is called the Golden Banks. And the reason it's called the Golden Banks is that there's coral heads coming up right below the surface of water that are gold in color. So you have to navigate during the daytime so you can steer around these coral heads that aren't chartered. And it's now dark. Well, one of the real miracles of the story is that my friend Chris and I had spent a summer working on the boat in high school and the part of the boat that he had helped upgrade was a steering system. So he basically figures out a way to fix it, cuts the hydraulic cable, drills a hole in the wheelhouse, puts it right up to the steering column, and fills it with hydraulic fluid, and we make it back. We get back to Nassau around 2 a.m. What should have been a five-hour boat ride was basically a 20-hour boat ride. The galley was a disaster, the boat was a wreck, furniture was turned over, TVs were broken, the whole refrigerator had emptied its contents, broken glass everywhere. The boat was destroyed, but all eight passengers, and the fishing boat was gone, all eight passengers, two crew members arrived safely. 
I don't know if you've ever been stranded at sea for 20 hours in hurricane-like conditions, but it's awful. The seasickness is terrible. Um, and oddly enough, this may surprise you, this was the captain's last gig on a boat. He got the boat back to Charleston and he became a yoga instructor. <laughs> it's a true story. So when Meredith and I came back, our lives were different as well. You can't go through something like this without having a huge and monumental effect on your life. At that time, we had moved from Nashville to Greenville about a year before this trip. We had been visiting this church um, for about a year. And at this point in our lives, we were in what we called the Christian club. Meaning we weren't all in for our Lord at that time. Let me explain. Coming through six years of residency and fellowship is quite an experience. I wouldn't want anyone to uh, go through it unless you're 100% committed um, on being a doctor. From a work standpoint, residency was awesome. I loved it. It's the best six years of my entire life from a work standpoint. Uh, I was fortunate to go to a great place, very old school in their call scheduling. Um, it was basically 24 hours on, 24 hours off, which ended up being like 30 hours on duty. 18 hours off or whatever, something like that. On your better months, you're on every third or fourth night. When you're on call, they call you a resident because you live there. On your call nights, you reside in the hospital. You don't go home. Um, and it was awesome. I mean, it was an intellectually stimulating, physical trying time. You're surrounded by brilliant people. Um, it was just fantastic. But for your personal life, this was a pressure cooker. Um, Meredith and I are still working through the after effects of this in our marriage some 20 years later. She is, Meredith is an amazing wife and mother. And um, especially through this half decade when I was basically gone. Um, you got two small kids, residency and fellowship, it's full court press at home, survival mode. We joined a great church in Nashville. Um, but when you only have one weekend off per month, it gets hard to be involved in the life of a church, and we were not. So moving to Greenville, things pretty much continued the same. I was 100% committed to work. Meredith 100% committed to our family and church, and our faith got the leftovers. Then this trip happened. We came back, and the next Sunday in church, our minister at that time was a guy named Dave Gobb. He preached on not being all in for Christ or being a lukewarm Christian. Ooh. We knew we weren't being actively involved in our church or our faith, worrying more about what others thought about us than pleasing God, letting our culture determine our church, our kids' school, our friends. Yes, we believed in Christ, but we weren't growing our faith, not following God first in our lives. I felt the minister was preaching to me. Have you ever felt that Dave Osborne has been like listening to your phone conversations or reading your journals? That's the way I felt. The other thing that affected me about this experience, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I believed in him, but I didn't know him. I couldn't quote scripture to myself. On this trip, I didn't have any songs to sing to reassure me. Um, I couldn't talk to him because I didn't know him. I didn't have an active prayer life. And going through this storm literally helped us realize we needed Jesus in our lives. We needed what he brought. We needed his love and his relationship. We needed the security. I can remember Meredith telling me this as it was yesterday. Maxwell Jesus is real, and we're living our life as like he's not. 
In other words, we went through a storm and we didn't feel the security of having Jesus as a shelter from the storm. We didn't feel a relationship of having him as a hiding place from the wind. So things changed. We wanted to know Jesus better. We joined this church. We started attending more regularly. We became involved in a small group. I joined a Bible study. I'm still in today kind of a vestige of it. We made an effort to get to know Christ. The storm was a wake-up call. Not in a sense as much about fear, but it gave us a sense of what we were missing in life. And what we're missing was experience with Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. The Christian faith isn't a list of boxes to check. Going to church, check. Joining a small group, check. Having a quiet time every day, check. Make a tithe, check. Check. Volunteering, check. These are important. Don't get me wrong, but what we missed was getting to know Jesus. Once you get to know him, your life will be changed forever. Friends, we need a Christian community to grow in as believers. We need to be members of a church to grow in our faith. We need to be in a small group to be held accountable, to stretch the gospel in your lives. Remember, grace and forgiveness come before a relationship with Jesus. Then comes his relationship, and the relationship grows, and the life changes happen as a response to his grace. Once you know Jesus, you'll want to go to church to hear about him, to understand him better. You'll want to join a small group because you want to love people that are created in his image and get to know them, be part of a Christian community. He has loved you, and because of this relationship, you'll want to have a quiet time. You'll want to support his ministries and tithe. So in looking back 17 years ago, after the storm which awakened my faith, I'm just so thankful to have had a growing relationship with our Lord and Savior. I acknowledge how different my life is now, how different a person I am. There are lots of different ways I could tell you I'm a better husband, father, coworker, friend because of my relationship with Christ. But one issue I remember really struggling with was my temper. And I still struggle with it now. Just ask the guys that played golf with me yesterday. I'm not perfect. As a physician, you're really encouraged to be a perfectionist. And taking care of patients who are on the edge of death in an intensive care unit or chronically ill on dialysis, perfectionism in patient care is encouraged, to put it mildly. I really could lose my temper quite easily, though, when anything or anyone fell short in my view of perfection in patient care. This also leaked into my personal life badly. I could at times be hard to live with. Now, don't get me wrong, I still have to work on my anger, but reflecting the difference, having a relationship with Jesus and his effect in my life, and knowing he died on the cross, knowing he was wrongfully charged and executed, the only perfect sinless life in the history of the world, and we killed him, feeling his forgiveness and personally experiencing it puts everything in perspective. I love our church's mission statement. Love God, love people, and love our city. Or translated by Dave another way, normal people doing normal things with gospel intentionality. Or James' version, being motivated by grace in our lives and not deficit. So what does this mean? What does it mean to love people and do normal things with gospel intentionality? Dave sets up here all the time. Or to live out grace instead of deficit. There's another story. This one compliments of Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers. There was a man who worked in a very successful business in New York City. He had an assistant under him who was fairly new, who had been working for this company for, say, six months, okay? And she had a project and made a bad mistake. 
like, I mean, cost their business a lot of money. So the heads of the business called a meeting. She and her boss are going to the meeting, and she's expected she's going to be severely reprimanded or fired. So the heads of the business, the bosses from, you know, upstairs around this meeting, all right, tell us about what happened here. And her boss just jumps in and says, yep, I just made a bad call on this one. I'm sorry. They looked at him, kept moving on. No other comments about it. Move to the next thing. So after the meeting, she comes up to him, knocks on his door, says, can I talk to you about something? Yeah, sure. Why'd you do that? He's like, you know, I, um, I don't know. It just seemed to me the right thing to do. Um, and she's like, no, 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 seriously, why'd you do that? He says, you know, I, you know, I've been here a long time. I've got a lot of sweat equity in this big business. I figured they may fire you. So I just, I just, it was the right thing to do. I can handle it. And she thinks herself for a second. She says, no, 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 no. I've been, do, I've been in this business for 15 years. I've never seen anything like that. Why did you do that? He said, all right, I'm going to tell you because you're pressing me, but you've got to promise you won't tell anyone. I know someone named Jesus. He died on the cross for me and my sins. And I'm just trying to, trying to do the right thing. And she said, where do you go to church? <laughs> Guys, friends, that's how you live with gospel intentionality. That's living by grace and not by deficit. And that's how the church grows, the church of Jesus grows. So I ask you, do you need a wake-up call in your life? Maybe you're in the midst of a storm. Do you need experience with Jesus? Friends, Jesus is our hiding place from the wind, our shelter from the storm, our stream of water in a dry place, our shade of great rock in a weary land. Friends, Jesus is king. Not will be, he is. And he will reign in righteousness and justice. Friends, it's guaranteed, means it will happen. And the amazing thing, the really amazing thing, is that he wants you to be part of his eternal kingdom. Friends, our Lord is not dead but alive. He's here and ready and desiring a relationship with each and every one of you. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you so much that he died so that you would be with him forever. And where does this take us? It takes us to the table.